At the beginning of September, Stephanie Isaacs announced her candidacy for a city council seat in Shelbyville, Tennessee. It's a small city about an hour south of Nashville. Its claim to fame is an annual walking horse festival. But it's becoming a place where people priced out of Nashville come to find an affordable place to live. So it's a fairly working-class city. About half the population are renters. And that includes a growing number of asylum seekers and refugees from places like Somalia and Guatemala. Stephanie is one of those renters. She's white. She's working class. She's in her late 20s. And this was her first ever run for office. Stephanie didn't come out of the blue. Stephanie Isaacs is the founder of the Bedford County Listening Project, a 10-month walking survey of more than 230... She's been a leader in a mostly white tenants' rights group for the past three years. She's gone door-to-door in decaying apartment complexes. She's been a formidable presence at public meetings. And she's made plenty of enemies among the city's landlords. And if we zoom out a bit more, Stephanie is part of a white anti-racist organizing tradition that goes back a long way in the South one that has appeared time and time again in poor and working-class communities. But almost every time a movement like that starts to form, it hardly makes it out of its infancy. And why is that? Well, the short answer is that solidarity is fragile, and especially when whiteness is involved. But even if it only shows up in fits and starts, there is no version of white anti-racism with deeper roots in the South than working-class solidarity. So let's try to get a sense of what it's looked like in the past 60 years. From KUAF Public Radio, and with funding from the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, I'm Paul Kiefer, and this is The Movement That Never Was, a people's guide to anti-racism in the South and Arkansas. If you listen to the first episode of this series, you'll know the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. You'll also know that SNCC voted to become an all-black organization in 1967. And you'll know that at least some of the former white staff went on to try organizing white people. Only a handful of them were actually from the South. But SNCC's impact on organizing in the South extended beyond its own staff. We're well aware that a lot of the civil rights movement was born on the campuses of black colleges and universities in the South. What might be less well-known are the seeds the movement planted on the campuses of white colleges in the South. And the most prominent of those seeds popped up in 1964 as the Southern Student Organizing Committee, or SOC. People like Stokely Carmichael, who had good relations with people in SOC, encouraged SOC to really stick to the white community and to the white campus. Stokely's famous phrase to the people in SOC was, I can't organize the guys hanging around the gas station, that could only be you. So SNCC was the model. That's Greg Michelle. He's a history professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio, and he wrote the book on SOC. And he says that most of the group's members had worked with SNCC in some capacity, and they picked up direction and momentum from their experiences with SNCC. And with that guidance, the members of SOC set out to try to build support for anti-racism among their white peers on college campuses. But aside from the fact that some of them came from working-class backgrounds, what does any of this have to do with working-class organizing? Some of SOC's organizers wanted to look beyond the campus. There was a segment of the group early on, um, uh, especially as we get into 65, 66, that was very interested in connecting the the on-campus to the off-campus. And the way to do that was through labor, through organized labor and unions. Um, They pushed real hard to support um, 
organizing campaigns by college campus workers at places like Duke and University of North Carolina, and they got involved in labor mill, uh, sorry, textile mill uh, organizing in North Carolina as well. Um, it wasn't, I, mean, I don't want to pretend it was this great success, but it reflected an orientation that said we got to move off the campus. And why would that campaign qualify as anti-racist? Well, not all mill employees were white, and unionization would have theoretically benefited both black and white workers. So really, the campaign was partially about convincing white workers to feel a sense of shared struggle with their black co-workers. But even if a few white mill hands recognized the value of solidarity, there were two key obstacles that stopped the movement from really taking root in North Carolina mills. It didn't go great. Um, aside from the you know, opposition of employers, um, they didn't win enough support from um, mill hands to force union votes in most cases. So why didn't mill hands and others in the mill support them? I mean, there's any number of reasons, um, but uh, you know, you'd have to say race was definitely part of it. In short, many white mill hands saw aligning themselves with black workers as a step too far, even if that meant sacrificing the benefits of unionization. That problem, white workers choosing race loyalty over class solidarity, isn't new. In fact, it's so common that there's a shorthand for it. It's often called the race bribe. Anyway, after their unionization projects fell through, SOC didn't last long. Like a lot of other civil rights groups, it fell apart in the late 1960s because of internal disagreements, a lack of resources, and the enduring hostility of the white communities they were trying to organize. But the members who wanted to remain involved in anti-racism didn't focus on keeping a spark alive on college campuses. To them, the future of anti-racism in the South was about working-class solidarity, even if that meant overcoming the allure of the race bribe. A lot of it was personal, um, which is to say there was a segment of SOC activists who, after the group's collapse in 1969, moved into uh, jobs in factories. They took factory jobs in Southern communities because they believed that that was where the most radical potential for change in the South resided. And so they wanted to live essentially what they preached. So let's back up a little. Sock was like a Southern corollary to a much more famous group called Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS. SDS was based in Chicago, and its members were essentially white Northern college students. But they also wanted to venture off campus. They wanted to shift the anti-racist movement from colleges to white working-class communities in the North. It just so happened that one of the big working-class white neighborhoods in Chicago was a southern enclave called Uptown. And I'm going to turn things over to someone who lived in Uptown in the 60s and 70s to explain what happened there. His name is High Thurman, and he moved to Chicago from rural East Tennessee. I was raised in, you know, the South. Uh, Extremely poor conditions, uh, single parent home. To a large extent, you know, we. I started working and going out into the fields, working with my my uh, mother and my siblings when I was about three months old. In the 1950s, a stream of poor white people from the Upper South were migrating to cities in the Midwest and the Northeast looking for work. They'd show up in Cincinnati, work for a while, move to Cleveland, work for a while more. 
and then go to Pittsburgh or Detroit and so on. By the time he reached his late teens, High decided to do the same thing. Uh, and I finally decided that I wanted to, to get out. I had an older brother in Chicago. And High's brother lived in Uptown. And to the rest of Chicago, Uptown had a reputation. Specifically, Uptown became a magnet for poor white Southerners like High and his brother. By the early 1960s, there were as many as 40,000 white Southern migrants in the city, almost all of whom congregated in Uptown. It was pretty much run down when the Appalachians uh, and other people from the South started moving north uh, to find jobs because of the, uh, the farms being taken over by the, uh, the big conglomerates and the banks uh, and the coal mines uh, shutting down. But when they arrived in Uptown, most of the migrants didn't fare any better than they had back home. But unfortunately, when they came to Chicago, you know, in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, you know, there, there was no jobs available for their, their skill. You can't plant a garden on concrete, you know, so, but they had no other skills. So Uptown became uh, one of the highest unemployment areas in, in Chicago. Actually, at one time in the 1960s, uh, it was 47% unemployment rate. And even where there were jobs, migrants like High were often turned away by employers who looked down on them. When I got there, I applied everywhere for a job in Chicago and, and uh, got turned down by almost every one of them because I was from, from the South and was considered to be, you know, a, a backwards hillbilly. So High and other migrants were stuck doing dangerous day labor and watching employment agencies skim their wages. And this wave of migrants was continuing to pass through Chicago in the mid-1960s. And that's when Uptown caught the attention of Students for a Democratic Society. Uh, the Students for a Democratic Society came into the community in around 1965, I think. And um, they came into the Uptown community because they, they wanted to try to find people jobs. And so what happened was um, they realized that jobs were not the only problems that we had in the community, that there was much more housing issues, uh, you know, police brutality, you know, uh, nutrition. And SDS found its greatest success in organizing a group of former gang members who had begun to turn political. They called themselves the Good Fellas. And High's brother was a member. SDS was very instrumental in uh, teaching some political ideology, also uh, radical ideology, and and also uh, helped the uh, Goodfellas organize a march on the local police station because of the police brutality. And so they have to organize that, but then they also have to organize, you know, other like tenant unions, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, food pantries. Uh, one of the areas that they did work into was welfare rights. Uh, and so, the, you know, they, they had a lot of, and, you know, they try to educate as much as they could. But the students from SDS didn't fit perfectly into Uptown. You know, there were some class tensions. There were some, uh, there were some students who, you know, had a little bit and flaunted it. Uh, but there were, you know, there were some that were just very, very dedicated to 
you know, the helping the community and helping people. Although they're, they were limited uh, as far as fitting into the community. So it became clear to High and other white Southerners who had started working with SDS that Uptown needed to start organizing for itself. And that's when they started to call themselves the Young Patriots Organization. At that point, it's 1968. As SDS and the Goodfellas were busy organizing poor white people in Uptown, other poor communities across Chicago were also starting to form anti-racist revolutionary movements. Just a few blocks away from Uptown, in a Puerto Rican neighborhood called Lincoln Park, another street gang had transformed into a leftist political group called the Young Lords. And at about the same time, a former SNCC worker named Bobby Lee Rush co-founded the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. And you probably already know something about the Black Panther Party. But let's go over some basics. The Panthers began as a group of black students at Merritt College in Oakland, California. And they were all migrants from the South. They actually got their name from an offshoot of SNCC founded in Alabama by Stokely Carmichael. And the Panthers were the most prominent product of the black power era, a product of the same shift in the civil rights movement that prompted SNCC to become all black. But in 1968, class struggle was front and center in their rhetoric. So in Chicago, the new Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, co-founded by Bobby Lee Rush and led by a charismatic 20-year-old named Fred Hampton, was looking to form alliances with other poor communities in the city who shared their interest in social justice and class revolution. So it was only a matter of time before they ran into the Young Patriots. And that finally happened at a fundraiser in a middle-class neighborhood on Chicago's north side. We really didn't know that the Black Panthers were going to be there, and they didn't know that we were going to be there. And so we kind of ended up on the same ticket. And uh, and so when we, we started talking about Uptown and what we were trying to raise money for, you know, to help our community, we were tongue-lashed basically by the white people about, you know, why don't you work and get off of welfare and all this stuff. Well, Bobby Lee stood up for us. You know, he stood up for us at that meeting. And he said that, you know, we're talking the same language as the black pastors are talking, you know. And that, you know, we all have the same problem. There's police brutality up here. There's rats and roaches. There's poverty up here. That's the first thing that we can, we, we can unite on. That's the common thing we have, man. And we can unite on poverty and unite on the concept of poverty. You know, everything comes colors, man. Right on. The building's not fit for dogs to live in, but humans having to pay $144 a month for the thing. They sold, they sell the building, you know, to new ownership. What we need is understanding among the people. Right on. Coalition between the people to stick together. Right on. And take them owners and put them over here in the lake somewhere. Right on. Right on. And so from that point, we started... You know, we started talking with each other, and he came into uptown. He lived there for a while, and then he thought, "Yeah, this might just be, you know, the area we need to go into, since there's a there's a bunch of crazy hillbillies up there on the north side talking revolution." At least where politics were concerned, the Black Panthers and the Young Patriots seemed like a perfect match. They were both evolutions of the civil rights movement. They were both fighting for tenants' rights against police brutality, for fair pay. But in reality, they developed separately. 
The Patriots developed in a community of poor white migrants from the South in which anti-black racism was widely accepted. And the Panthers developed in a community of poor black migrants from the South who had been on the receiving end of that racism for their entire lives. So when the Black Panthers, the Young Patriots, and the Young Lords, that's the Puerto Rican group I mentioned earlier, came together to form what they called the Rainbow Coalition, it took time to adjust. It was kind of tense. Uh, you know, we had some of our people who didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, we had a, uh, people of the Young Lords, uh, they didn't want anything to do with us. They left. Uh, the Black Panthers, some of them didn't want anything to do with us, and they, they left. But it was, it was only intense for a little while. And I think it's a purge, basically, that needed to happen, you know, to get people on the same, the same page. The core principle of the Rainbow Coalition was solidarity. There was no defined leader. Each of the member organizations remained embedded in their own communities. But if the Panthers or the, or the Lords, you know, needed us to come and organize with them or go on a march or take over a building or, or whatever they wanted, uh, we would come to them and, and strip ourselves of the young patriots. We would become a Black Panther. For the most part, the Panthers, the Young Lords, and the Patriots just kept doing what they were doing. They helped each other set up free medical clinics. They provided breakfast to school kids and seniors. They led protests against slumlords, and they took in and helped rehabilitate former drug users. And actually, within the first year of the coalition, they ran a presidential campaign. The Panthers provided the candidate for president. He was Eldridge Cleaver, an Arkansan and the party's national secretary. They wanted someone uh, like a white person to run as vice president, and and so they came to Uptown and asked, and, and then uh, we had identified Peggy Terry, who was a, a poor welfare mother, but also a former Klan member, and she had also had some uh, work with SNCC, and it was called the, the Cleaver Terry presidential campaign. But this was the late 1960s. The FBI was ramping up its harassment of civil rights groups, and Chicago was under the control of Mayor Richard Daley, the head of a political dynasty notorious for giving not-so-tacit support for horrifying police brutality. I was disappointed to know that every policeman out on the beat was supposed to use his own decision. In my opinion, he should have had instructions to shoot arsonists and to shoot looters. And the Rainbow Coalition was squarely in the sights of the FBI, the Chicago Police Department, and Mayor Daley. Uh, every time we would go into a, a building and, and set up the health clinic, breakfast for children program, the cop would come in and harass the, you know, try to harass people, take their medications from them, you know, snatch them up and take them to jail. Uh, they'd get tests for the landlords who owned the building, and the next thing you know, would be evicted. But the harassment wasn't just limited to arrests and intimidation. Uh, I was taken into an alley, and hell beat out of me by two cops kicking. There were uh, reports of uh, reports of um, cops pulling people's fingernails out. Uh, Fred Hampton and others. 
uh, had to sew their pockets shut because if they saw you going to your pocket, they can say you were a weapon, which gave them the opportunity to beat you or shoot you. Uh, you know, so it was it was just it was just a bad situation. And the Chicago Police Department did eventually shoot Fred Hampton. On an early morning in December 1969, Chicago police raided Hampton's home while he lay asleep with his pregnant girlfriend. They fired through his bedroom wall, dragged him out of bed, and then executed him as he lay in the hallway. Also, that Officer Davis uh, may well have walked into that back bedroom, contrary to his testimony, and fired a shot into the body of Fred Hampton at one point. So, as quickly as the Rainbow Coalition picked up steam, the Chicago Police Department knocked the wind out of it. The rising threats of arrests and torture and death scared away new recruits and supporters. And to make matters even worse, the city's leadership were mounting a campaign to clear away uptown entirely. Uh, one of the things that Daly would do uh, would, would pick a particular institution, like you know, university, college, whatever, and, and put it into these communities that were urban renewal designated communities. And so he he uh, identified a community college to go into uptown that would be, be removing the biggest portion of some white population. The Patriots tried to fight back. They presented the city council with a plan for a self-sustaining southern enclave they called Hank Williams Village, which they hoped would become an affordable housing development and social service hub that could take in new arrivals from Appalachia. But even after they found funding for the idea, through grants and fundraising and all of that, the Patriots didn't have a chance to save Uptown. They turned it down and finally went to the city council, and the city council voted in, you know, the, the community college, which stands there now as, as one of Daly's legacies. And that is what changed Uptown. Uh, that's what kind of, that's what destroyed, that's pretty much what destroyed the young Patriots. The Patriots splintered into competing groups. Some of the old members stuck around in Chicago for a while, but without a community to organize, the Patriots couldn't exist. Similar fates befell the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, and by the early 1970s, the short-lived experiment in an anti-racist working-class solidarity movement was over. Like a lot of the other poor white Southerners who had joined the Young Patriots, High headed back south, and when he returned to Tennessee, he brought his new anti-racist political identity with him, for better and for worse. I tried living in my hometown. I couldn't do that because everywhere I would go, I and others, the cops always knew about it, you know, where we were, and they walked us for years. And I had to leave my hometown because of threats and, uh, you know, on me and my family. So I, I, I eventually wandered around the South for a long time. High is still in the South. He's living in Huntsville, Alabama, and he's running a school for anti-racist organizers. And back in 2017, just after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, High headed just across the state line to the north to join counter-protesters at a white supremacist rally in Shelbyville. And as it so happens, that rally was also the genesis of the Bedford County Listening Project. That's the tenants' rights group that Stephanie runs. Stephanie was there. 
So walking to the rally, there were snipers on the roof of the school that you had to pass by to get in line, to get padded down because you couldn't have certain things to come into the like counter protest area. And like on our side, everybody was just, you know, supportive and um, everybody on the other side was very angry. Um, you kind of got the feeling that if something happened, the police wouldn't be on our side. She says that in the wake of the rally, the reactions of Shelbyville residents split down class lines. There were a lot of, um, like, working-class folks were basically, like, they didn't want it, you know, they didn't want stuff like that to come back. They didn't want it to be here. Um, a lot of the richer folks were basically like, well, I'm glad they didn't damage property. Um, I mean, that's why, you know, we started just to, to see what, why people, why... Um, you know, like other groups like that thought Shelbyville was a place to come to and to prevent it. So that's why we decided to start knocking and see what people, you know, needed or didn't need. And And when they were outdoor knocking in 2017, Stephanie and her fellow organizers had to take a leaf out of the Young Patriots book. They wanted to win the trust of their neighbors, so they had to meet them where they were. I mean, in that conversation we had with people, if you wanted to come door knock with us, you knew that you weren't going to go to that door and you weren't going to shame them or, or have a look on your face that meant you were shaming them because people are not going to come and talk to you and tell you their problems if they don't trust you. And if you're judging them, they're not going to trust you. To be clear, Stephanie and a few other organizers went around knocking on the doors of anyone they could find in the city. But who actually showed up when the Bedford County Listening Project started holding meetings? The person you're about to hear speak is Kelly Sue Waller. She's another organizer with the project. People that came were a lot of single mothers, a lot of single mothers that were facing substandard housing issues, who didn't have a lot of family. Some of those people were actually ostracized from their families because they were in multiracial families. And Kelly and Stephanie are quick to point out that most of those women are white. But they have a pretty good idea why more immigrant and refugee neighbors haven't been willing to stir the pot in a town like Shelbyville. A lot of folks are really friendly. We had some good conversations. But basically, people said that that they're afraid. They need houses. They need places to live. And that they are afraid because of the political climate. That may not be the word that was used. The political climate that people are afraid of ICE. They don't know who's knocking on their door. And Kelly says that something similar is true in the case of non-immigrant Black neighbors. Tenants' rights work is risky, and people fear the consequences will be worse for Black renters. Black leaders who we had connections with basically said, y'all build some power, stick your heads out, let us know what happens. Um, And encouraged us to, yes, organize white folks. As weird as that sounds, and as much as, like, there's some pushback from the left around organizing white spaces. There is also a tradition and an ask of being asked to do just that for white folks to go into their own neighborhoods and organize people. So how do they plan to build an anti-racist movement with a room full of working class white Southerners with an array of political beliefs? Did you know that Dale Earnhardt thought that the Confederate flag was bad because his housekeeper said she didn't like it? And did y'all know (laughs) Dolly Parton just said Black Lives Matter? Like. And the next step, Kelly says, is focusing on the problems that led people to show up to the meeting. 
bed bugs, mold, dirty water, you know, the immediate problems. Landlords will tell renters, well, the reason there's not enough housing here is we have so many, I'm going to use the word immigrants. That is not the word that people normally use. Sometimes people say illegals. Um, and that they're the ones who bring in the roaches and the bed bugs. And when we hear that, one thing that I've heard other renters and Stephanie say is basically like, who benefits when you believe that? Who benefits when you believe that the fault of substandard housing and lack of rental protections is the cause is like other working people? Like what? Who, who, like trying to point to the power structure that's not solving the problem rather than your neighbor. And it's at that point, says Kelly, that she and Stephanie can start explicitly addressing the fact that meetings are overwhelmingly white. When you have a conversation with white folks about who's in the room, then you are talking about your whiteness. She says those conversations can't follow the standard anti-racist script. We, we don't do what a lot of um, anti-racist middle class and upper middle class folks do. And partially that's because we're not in the same situation that upper and middle class and rich white folks are and don't have the same kind of privilege. Do we have white privilege? Yes. But it is a different white privilege when you're poor than when you're rich. But Kelly also added that most of the people who come to the meeting don't really need to be convinced of that. A lot of the people who show up have already figured it out on their own. We got to talk about why some people don't feel safe to call the police and report that their landlord has illegally shut their power off. But there's a big unanswered question. Has the Bedford County Listening Project actually made any headway? It saved 12 families from being evicted, but um, the first day the eviction, like the courts opened from like, what was it, like March to June, there were like 61 evictions filed. But Kelly brought up one incident that stuck with her as a sign that their project could really live up to its anti-racist goals. She's going to reference something called Turk in a second. That's the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition. And among other things, they monitor possible anti-immigrant legislation in the state. We were planning to release, in January 2020, we were releasing a walking survey of 250 renters that we had talked to, just like a damning report of the substandard housing issues in Shelbyville. And the day that we were doing the press release, Turk reached out and was like, hey, do you know that they're trying to pass this resolution in Shelbyville that would be non-binding, but it's harmful anyway? that says they don't want any more refugees. And we reached out to the people who were doing the press conference, which were like renters and members of the VCLP, and we were like, hey, this thing's happening today. And immediately the, the group was like, oh, well, we need to write that into our statements. And we made signs that were like, refugees, not slumlords. I mean, it was, it was immediate. And for me, it was, it was a moment for me where I was like, this is possible. <laughs> like, this, you know, I mean, I wanted to believe it was possible, but it was really a moment for me where I was like, okay, this, 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 this is real. Here's a group of folks who are here about their renters issue, and they hear that their town is like this certain couple of commissioners are trying to do this. And they're like, no, those are my neighbors. Stephanie didn't go knocking on doors as an anti-racist candidate. 
she went out as a tenants' rights candidate. She spoke to voters' self-interest. And to her, that's the starting point. It's the starting point for pretty much every multiracial, working-class solidarity movement in Southern history. But that, in and of itself, doesn't make for an anti-racist movement. And it's why so many of these movements are prone to failing. Time and time again, in Arkansas and everywhere else in the South, poor white people have joined multiracial movements to fight a shared problem. And then they walked away when they began to believe that anti-racism wasn't in their best interest. And sometimes it's inevitable. Sometimes, like in Chicago, it's police brutality. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's political power. But it's undeniable. Self-interest is always the starting point for movements like these. It was a starting point for the Young Patriots. And it's the starting point in Shelbyville, too. But for a movement like those to have real legs, its members need to really believe in an anti-racist future. That's what Stephanie hopes she and her fellow organizers can keep so alive in Shelbyville. It's so important <laughs> that we stay the path and we keep having these conversations with people about that our neighbors matter, no matter what their color are, and that everybody has can have a seat at our table, and that we are stronger that way. So to reiterate, working-class solidarity is a starting point. Race, and within that, whiteness, don't disappear when working-class people band together. But the fact that someone like High Thurman is still out there teaching anti-racist workshops in Alabama, and the fact that the Bedford County Listening Project is finding a foothold in Shelbyville, means there's hope that white anti-racism can really take root in working-class white Southern communities. And possibly more than anywhere else, those communities are ripe for creating a lasting and effective white anti-racist movement. Thanks for listening. The Movement That Never Was, A People's Guide to Anti-Racism in the South and Arkansas, is a production of KUAF Public Radio with support from the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. It's written and executive produced by Paul Kiefer. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Blagg. You can learn more about this podcast series online at KUAF.com.